This episode of Landmine Radio is sponsored by Dittman Research. Do you know what the most valuable thing in the world is? High-quality information. Because high-quality information informs much better decision-making. Dittman Research has been providing high-quality information to Alaska's leading businesses, organizations, and campaigns for 50 years. Do you really know what Alaskans think about your company or your issue? How about your clients, your shareholders, or your employees? So stop fumbling around in the dark. Hire Dittman Research and find out what's really going on. DittmanResearch.com All right, folks, back here with Representative Ken McCarty. How you doing, Ken? Doing good. Beautiful day in Juneau, huh? Yes, the mist is marvelous. <laughs> um, we've uh, I've wanted to get you on the podcast for for a while. I uh, I first met you virtually uh, in twenty, I guess it was eighteen, right after. That's correct. It was uh, November of eighteen. Yeah. So I went to go cover the meeting. So Nancy Dahlstrom had won the House seat, and then she right away took a job as commissioner of. Uh, corrections where she still is and then they had a quick meeting to figure out the republicans to which names to give to the governor uh and there was several people and you were one of them who put your name in but you were actually on the computer in costa rica that's correct and i remember saying why is he in costa rica but you had explained that you had a a hip replacement right Uh, that's correct yeah i went down to costa rica to uh get my left hip uh, taken care of and uh, the quality of care down there was phenomenal uh, and it looked uh, great oh yeah it was it was amazing and I um, uh, for being down there and I was um, the earthquake happened the day after the surgery oh so and you were there during the, the big 2018 quake yes oh wow so I could not return because of blood clot concerns of the surgery that just happened so I was stuck on a beach on the Pacific coast uh, for four weeks uh, recovering waiting to get back now you, you described you had the first you had a first replacement in America in the US right that's correct I had the right hip done in Anchorage and a great doctor um, and uh, that hip just the replacement with the insurance and all covering that was like a hundred and five thousand dollars so crazy the cost of medic, med, medical treatment in this country. I mean, I've had these like sinus surgery, you know, mm-hmm. which is a four-hour deal. Don't even stay the night, and it's like fifty thousand yeah. dollars with the hospital and the doctor and the anesthesiologist. So why why did you uh, just a cost issue for for going to Costa Rica? Well, that was the case, and also when the hip was done in. in uh, in Anchorage, that uh, the insurance company, and I'm in healthcare, as you know, and mm-hmm. uh, but the insurance company was uh, pre-approved, and uh, yet they were dinking around paying the bill, and uh, the hospital, as well as the doctor, was saying, uh, we're not getting paid, and it's been six months, and I said, hey, I'll go to bat for you, don't worry about it, and, um, and I did, but um, if it wasn't for the consumer, uh, the insurance company was messing with the providers, and they paid it a month later, I end up paying still quite a bit of money uh, for that procedure, and so like the, the deduct, deductible, deductible, and other different things that they just you know. So, so when I was looking at my uh, left hip to be replaced, that I um, just like I did the first time, went to who's a good orthopedic uh, in Alaska, 
And uh, the doctor was highly regarded there. Well, here and now I'm looking at who's internationally known. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were doctors in uh, Thailand. And Thailand's Rica. another medical tourism spot, yeah. I was there in 2019. Uh, and I, my daughter's doing work in Cambodia. And, and uh, I went up to Angkor Wat and saw the, the temples there. It was amazing. Wow. Uh, but I told him, I said, I'm going to pop over to uh, Thailand because I hear uh, a phenomenal experience for just getting a physical. And I had no need, but I thought, well, I'm just going to do this because I hear amazing things. And it was that in four hours, the whole proceedings of, you know, from x-ray of the chest to, you know, stress test to uh, a sonogram, you know, I'm not pregnant, you know. (laughs) (laughs) These days, you know, you can be whatever you want, you know. (laughs) So all that, they, they knew the results in four hours. I bet so you it was what a hundred bucks, a couple hundred bucks, or something. Or it was just amazing. It was definitely you know cheap, cheaper, much cheaper. And they said uh, you need a colonoscopy. Uh, you're at a certain age, and uh, I said, well, when can you get me in? Thinking it's like a month. Yeah. You go. What are you doing tomorrow? Wow. And this was a very busy hospital establishment. A lot of people there, but they seem to run it very well. So it brings up the question to me: What is who's the third world? healthcare program them or us i've had friends go there for uh de- dental treatment um other kind of uh, same with friend kale green is a videographer he busted his um collarbone a year year ago a year or two ago and it was really expensive and you know the insurance i don't think he maybe didn't have insurance and it was it was ten thousand, and it was thirty thousand. you know it was all this he needed surgery so he went down to mexico with his girlfriend yeah and got the whole thing done with travel, with tickets, with hotels, with recovery for like eight grand. Amazing. And Amazing. and, and you, you were telling me with yours, you had like a, a room in a resort type thing, right? Oh, yeah. They catered to you. And uh, and that was the amazing part of it. And then, like I said, for me, the 24000 for down there was the flight, the stay in the hotel, the services. PT came to the place, the surgery. The whole thing. And I even got uh, just dental cleaning and uh, dermatology just kind of checked me out and it's like all good. But Did your insurance do anything with that or do they not do the uh, broad deal? Well, deal? during that time, I personally did not have any insurance. So wow. as I looked at the insurance uh, to purchase it, I think I would be paying about 1800 a month for insurance. So I figured, well, if I just save this money instead of paying it to some program, I might be able to use it if I... It's just so... You know, I lived in Australia for a year, and I think people get tired of me talking about it, but, you know, I they have, you know, different system, obviously, and there's taxes that are... There's a Medicare levy, and at the higher rates, taxes are more, but, you know, everybody there just has health care. And yeah. you don't worry about whether it's a pregnancy or a you know, car accident or what a cancer. Um, and they do have private insurance as well, but it's you can try to explain to the, my friends over there our system and they just don't really understand it. Mm-hmm. Like they can't like, even fathom it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now we have a bill in the house of dealing with, uh, you pay one fee a month and then you go to the doctor as many times as you want. And then you just, you know, committed to doing that fee, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And I think in Colorado, it's like $75 a month. And, uh, you know, we're watching this. In fact, I believe that bill is moving on. The craziest thing to me is in this country, we spend more per person than England, Canada, Australia, 
like per capita, we, we actually spend more money. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. we still have a situation where I've always kind of said, if you're if you're rich, okay, it's fine. If you're rich, if you're poor, you have medic medic Medicaid, so you're, you're gonna you know. But if you're like not rich or not poor, which is the majority of people, yeah, and you don't have like a really good job or a spouse with a really good job, uh, you're like I have the Obamacare. I bought the bronze plan and my, you know, I pay. I get like a little bit of a credit and my deductible is like six thousand dollars. So I mean, I basically have it just in case something happens. Mm-hmm. I don't want to you know be bankrupted. Mm-hmm. But I mean, all things. I mean, all things even. I almost wouldn't even rather not have it. It's not worth really paying for it. Yeah, unless you know, I guess something happens. Well, we need to do some serious changes in our healthcare. Um, and you know, one thing that, that's important to understand too is that um, as a provider, that uh, providers get the short end of the stick at times, so that insurance company may say, well, we're just not going to pay for those services that the provider did. And so the provider either is going after the person, the, the, the customer, um, or just decides it's not worth all the billing and going after the person. So they just eat the cost. I mean, some of the most, I think, sought after or, or, or maybe crucial positions in the medical field are, are these coders, these insurance biller coder, because they know I mean, I've seen these books, you know, it's like there's like hundreds or thousands of these, probably thousands of these codes. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a whole part of the, I mean, I've heard of some doctors just saying, screw it, we're not going to do insurance. We just have a fee schedule. You know, we're spending too much money trying to figure this out. Right. And that's the concept of the super bill. And so they'll just say, we're going to super bill you, you pay the money up front, and then the customer has to go after the money with their insurance mm-hmm. company. And uh, the insurance companies tend to pay the customer. It just means that you have to have the money to be able to do that. I know in my process for finding out, you know, do I need to get this hip replaced or, or what? And I certainly not jump into that. But um, I'd go into places and say, I just have cash. I don't have a lot of money, you know, but I just have to pay for it. And I'd find that some places would uh, charge me 60% less oh, yeah. than nice. what the, the customary code is, you know because you've got cash in hand. That was a question as I was down in Costa Rica that asking, because I'm down there for four weeks, you know, what can you do? You just ask lots of questions. How do you guys do this? They have a, a, a collective health program. And so if you, you're in that, you may, it may take a month to get in for a, uh, some type of procedure, whatever. Or if you pay more money, uh, a little bit more than you go to a private you know, uh, type of a facility. Um, so it's, it's available on both ends. It's not just stuck well, and, to one. And that's what I've said about places like Australia or, or even Canada or UK. Um, people talk about the weights and there is a weight. I mean, if you're, if your knees messed up or your, so, you know, your shoulder, um, you may have to wait a little bit. Mm-hmm. If you have, you know, cancer or, you know, if there's a, a rod sticking out of your arm or something, you're going to get taken care of quicker. But I always say here, you know, if you don't have insurance or money, the weight could be forever for something like a knee or a shoulder or, or something maybe not deadly, but something that's very, you know, painful and needs to yes. be fixed. Now, that's definitely the case. And for people who have insurance, um, as you know, I'm involved in mental health. Yeah, and I want to talk about I want to talk about that, too. After That I have people that are told, oh, I'm being told that I may have cancer or I may have this issue. And they can't rule it out for a month. They're scheduling me a month away. 
So they're stressing out for that whole month. And yeah, yeah, it's it's crazy it's like, how how long it takes to get. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I have this um, kind of nasal sinus problem I've had for a long time. It's my whole life kind of allergies, but sometimes you know you call and it's like, when can I get in? It's like, well, we have something in two weeks or three. Mm-hmm. So I mean, the doctors are obviously doing pretty well. That's great that they're busy. <laughs> yeah, they're busy. Um, so I want to go into in your your uh, business in a second, but first I want to ask, why did you? Uh, Decided to run for office. I mean, you kind of came out. I, I saw you in 18 when you tried to put your name forward, but I really hadn't heard much about you. Then you came You came in, in 2020 and challenged um, Sharon Jackson in the primary. Mm-hmm. And I'll be honest, I follow this stuff pretty close. And we were looking at this one and we kind of didn't really, we're like, I don't really know this guy. And, you know, I don't, you know, she, she kind of got uh, appointed. She wasn't really elected, mm-hmm. even though she was there the full you know term because Dal- Dahlstrom went to be commissioner. Um, so why did you decide to to get in? And did you did you feel confident about winning the primary? Did you feel like you were going to win? Or it seemed like it was a pretty good little battle you guys had there. Oh, thanks. Well, I think first of all, it's like all of um, leadership politics starts at home, you know. And and I can use this uh, aspect of politics is I talked to sixth graders uh, at the local uh, school there, and I asked them. I said. Uh, are you guys politicians? And they, they did, nobody raised their hand. And I said, well, how many of you have come up to your mother and asked for a cookie? And she says, no, you can't have a cookie until after dinner. <laughs> and you go up to dad and say, I think we should have a cookie together, you know? And I said, you're all politicians because they all raised their hand that they've done that, you know? I said, so it's being able to get an idea across and working with individuals to be able to move ideas. And... Um, and so watching what was happening with our district in, in Chugach and Eagle River and watching throughout the state, um, just it's people that are maybe able to work with others to get ideas across to be able to help our community. And, um, and so watching what happened with uh, Nancy and, and uh, how she ran and, and then took the position with the commissioner as uh, DOC, um, that there was an empty spot, and I was the secretary of the district for the Republican Party, and I'm Thir- thirteen, right? Of thirteen and fourteen. Yeah, you guys used to have that weird deal where you were combined, but then that got that got to be kind of a mess in that process. Didn't you split up since then? Or so they- in in January of uh, twenty, uh, that we decided to be our own districts and, and such, rather than combined. I was in that meeting, you know, and you were on the the com- computer, but there was a whole fight about the people in fourteen because it was a combined you know, district, I guess, or committee, but the people in 14 wanted to have a say about who the 13 person was and people in 13, some of them didn't want that. And it was, it was kind of entertaining watching, watching them fight it, fight it out. <laughs> yes. I, uh, only got to see it from the computer and it was and definitely a bit, uh, I got a bit loose and mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I think it was at that restaurant. Was it Piccolino's? Is that, I believe that's right. That's where we were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Good food. Yeah. So, Asking the question of like we got some serious issues coming down, and uh, who's you know going to be running? And I threw my name in the hat back in 2018, and for the appointment position, and and the decision uh, by the governor, and that was uh, for Sharon Jackson for the appointment. Um, and then watching what was going on in between 2018 and and 20, and uh, very concerned about what's happened in the state, and and critical thinkers and 
out of the box thinkers and as I described the situations for Costa Rica and, and my health and, and uh, I've done a lot of out of the box thinking to try to solve problems. And so I asked people, well, who else is running? And nobody was. And I said, okay, I'll run. It wasn't something that was my bucket list to run. But uh, a big deciding factor was I talking to my employees of uh, the counseling agency. And I said, okay, if I do this, what do you think? And they're all thumbs up and said, okay, boss, we'll cover the shop while you're away. And that's an honor to get that mm -hmm. recommendation. So when, when, did you, uh, when did you file? Was it? Early or late, I guess. I believe it was March of, of eight of twenty. Twenty. Oh, so pretty pretty late. It might have been later. I have to look. I, I know I was in because some people file a year before, or year you know, year and a half before. So yeah, I was contemplating this while I was in Cambodia of uh, 2019, and my daughter's doing great work, NGO work, and helping people down there. But um, did you go to the killing fields there? Did you go? Yes, I pretty, did. Pretty pretty wild. That whole Khmer Rouge thing is like. I think yeah. a lot of people don't, we don't get taught that Paul Pot stuff, but right. that was a bad one. The whole deal was not good. No, it wasn't good at all. And, and uh, my takeaway from that is, you know, the Vietnam War had ended. Pol Pot was still killing, I think it was 3.1 million people, the oh, yeah, Khmer people. It was horrible. And the whole world knew that, what was going on, but there wasn't an intervention and my takeaway was that there was a bigger Pol Pot character in the world that was more dangerous, and that was Mao Zedong. Mm -hmm. And uh, he well, had the, the nukes. tens of millions, you know. And and that's mm -hmm. right. They 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 have the they had yeah. the nukes pretty early. They were one of the early ones. You know, Soviet Union. I think China was number three. Yeah. To get the nukes. Um, anyway, so you filed, and then there was all these kind of primaries going on. It was all kinds of things happening, and. I feel like your race maybe didn't get as much attention as some of the other, the Chuck, you know, the, the, the Chuck cop race, um, Tom, Tom McKay, and then the Jennifer Johnston, James Kaufman, and some of the stuff in Fairbanks with, uh, like, uh, Rob Myers and John Coghill. And then even the Kathy Giesel, right. um, um, Lincoln is, oh my gosh. No, I and Sharon was not on a big hit list of you yeah. Know, she, that's, I just feel nice like that, that race wasn't very um, Roger Holland. I was thinking about for Kathy Giesel, but mm -hmm. that that wasn't one of the kind of higher profile ones. So, no. what what did you were you just hitting the doors or were you? What was what was? <laughs> it's funny you asked that question, Jeff. Is that uh, when I was hitting the doors, it was uh, during COVID. Yeah. And so, um, you know, people were saying, no, you need to lay low and whatever. And what I found was people were desperate to see another human being because well, they're isolated in their house. And I knock on the door and, and maybe, you know, I'd ha I literally had people charging at me to almost hug me like, well, oh my gosh, another human. And maybe there's three people that say, hey, can you stand off the side, but I'll talk. And yeah, I, 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 I mean, I ended up dropping out, but I was trying to run for the Senate as an independent last year. So I all summer long knocked on doors too. And uh, I found very few people were, I mean, I'd always kind of back up and I had a mask once in a while. Somebody said, can you put the mask on? Mm -hmm. But for the most part, it was outside. It was warm and people were very eager to, cause that was still the kind of peak of nothing was really open. Mm -hmm. People hadn't been going out other than hiking or something, but the restaurants weren't really open. Right. So I found the same thing. I think people were very eager to, to chat. Yeah. So did you, going into it, I mean, you hadn't run for office before, had, had, had you? Never had. 
So how do you feel going in? I mean, did you feel like I'm going to win or I don't know? It's Well, as I'm, I know a lot of people in the district, um, very involved in that. And uh, so hearing the positive responses from the people, the, it felt good. But also as a, um, an athlete, and as you know, I played competitive tennis, even was on the team, we won the national championship. And, and you never give up. You stay go hard, all the yeah. way to the end. So, um, you know, it's nice to, that the people said we like this guy and we want him there, and that's that's affirming. But now, the big job happens, and the the process doesn't stop. You just keep on trying to work ideas and and uh, all that. You know, one of the big things is uh, I'm going to put the pitch there is the the tennis courts, uh, racket courts in in um, Eagle River. That several years ago I was. Uh, uh, involved the rotary still am but um trying to fix up the parks and rec court at schroeder park and uh it was like looking at costing maybe five thousand dollars to do that and went to parks and rec and said here we could do this uh, volunteers in kind and uh they said no you, you know just- sometimes they won't let you do that because there's protectionism going on for the contractor for the people who want to do the work yeah i found that before there were some people that wanted to do a do a little work on a park and uh near where i live Oh. And Taku by Taku Lake. Oh yeah. And this is years ago. And I remember being they, they said no and I remember thinking like I was in the community council president of the community council and I remember thinking, What's a big deal? Yeah. They want to volunteer and what I kind of figured out was there's there's forces behind the scenes that don't like that. Yeah, well, that's exactly what happened. They they said give us the five thousand because we think it's gonna cost sixty. So I went up to Lions Park and I saw the four courts that had uh, willow trees growing in the middle of the courts. And I said, would you allow me to help coordinate a campaign for this? And uh, the Lions got behind it, and I became a Lion myself. And and uh, we are almost done with these courts, and we are putting the four courts back. The the, the asphalt is done. We're going to put pickleball lines as well as tennis I was just going to ask about pickleball because that's a big thing. It's growing, really. Yeah. It's like, uh, what, what, what was somebody... What somebody call it to me they said it was like a big guy's tennis or something <laughs> <laughs> right because it's not like as hard as tennis but it's it's still a kind of a workout you're still yes. moving i mean it's not like you're just sitting there it's it's still uh, a workout the spirit's willing but the flesh is not so so pickleball is a mm-hmm. nice sport so that is uh we're almost done with this and it's going to cost us a little less than a hundred thousand uh, dollars asd did the bartlett courts uh, four courts there, and it cost them four hundred sixty thousand. Incredible. So some I of think the, some of the stuff you see sometimes, and I'm I'm not like a you know, anti-government person, but you see something no. sometimes, and you're like, what? This isn't right. Just something's wrong here, you know. I think it's and it's a statement for us Alaskans that let's just make it happen. Yeah. And that's what happened. It's uh, no money's coming from the government. It's, uh, but I I got something that uh, actually. The rep uh, for that district there, uh, Rep Merrick, uh, there's a reappropriation that was, you know, about 36000 to help with a few things. So that's the only piece. But the rest of it has been the people from Eagle River and Chugiak. Yeah, well, cool. you know, when people get involved and they have a little skin in the game, I think they appreciate it more and take take care of it more. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you're, I want to talk a little bit, I want to go into the flying. We had a little conversation before, <laughs> and you're, 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 um, your business, but uh, you're in the minority. And I was just doing a podcast before with Jonathan Christ Tompkins, and 
he was in the minority for the first four years, but when he was, and he won in 2012, there was a lot of members like Les Garrett and Chris Tuck and Beth Cartool that have been around for a while. Um, the current minority with the Republicans, like many of you guys are just elected. Uh, many more were elected two years ago. I mean, a few like Steve Thompson have been around for a while and Kathy Tilton, but I mean, has it been kind of challenging with, with so, so many new people or do you see that as an advantage or, or a, or a chat or a challenge? Well, I, I think it's, uh, it's a little bit of both. I liken it to aviation when I first learned to fly that it wasn't so challenging of flying the plane. The challenge was talking to air traffic control. And I liken here is like to be able to talk to people and, and have ideas and throw them back and forth. Something I've done all, all my life. But being able to do it to the protocol of you know the rules and, and how you say it and when you say it and all that stuff. Uh, so having that is helpful for those seasoned individuals. I wish we did it like, you know, UK or Australia or even, you know, Russia, like they're, they're kind of parliamentarian systems. It gets, it gets very combative on the floor. You know, they, they don't hold back at all. I mean, I think it's more entertaining and it's almost even better to just, you know, put it out there Yeah, here in the U.S. It's so, everything's so based on rules and you can't. I mean, I think I've always thought it was so weird. You can't say people's names on the floor or the, if right. the other body. I've always thought that was, I guess it's about, you know, you don't want to piss people off, but th- isn't that weird? You can't say someone's name. The member from the South Anchorage. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. No, it's learning those rules there. And I, I laugh what you're saying. It's like either you watch a reality TV show or British Parliament and Parliament might be more fun to watch. Oh, yeah. No, it's great. They have the question time with the prime minister and then. They, they get scrappy, you know, and some of them are really witty. They say funny things and they kind of quip at each other. But it's, um, there's no debate here, really. It's like everybody just talks. Yeah. Um, so you have a mental health kind of um, counseling business, right? That's correct. So I want to talk about that because that's, uh, there's so much talk now of mental health in the country. It's, it's a big topic. But even in Anchorage, that's always comes up as, a you know, and the homelessness issue comes up. Mental health mm-hmm. seems to be one of the, you know, alcoholism, addiction, mental health. Those are sometimes related. Uh, so how'd you get into that and talk a little bit about what your business does and, and uh, why you got into that? Uh, well, uh, the impact of a high school teacher. So I was going to go into aviation. And uh, my senior year, the high school teacher was a uh, first time teaching a psychology class. I thought, this is pretty cool. And uh, a few other things inspired me to go into uh, mental health. So that's how I, I got in. So the power of uh, early on in the uh, youth's life. You know. It's crazy how I've had that kind of thing too. You meet one person that changes the course of your life. Mm-hmm. It happens all the time with all of us. Yeah, yeah. No, the, the you know, statement about the um, uh, homelessness. And uh, I see... Many different reasons for homelessness. Mental health is one, yeah. um, and uh, but it's not the only one. It's not the major one. Um, but uh, the people that have mental health issues, like how can we help them with technology today? There's uh, medication that could be uh, time released, so that makes it nice rather than having to remember to take a, a pill if they have to do that. Um, also, the uh, the stigma of mental health. Um, that it's like, well, I've got to go see a counselor. 
um, or something like my mental health is even, deemed it, as like a disorder. But yeah, really, even now it's still, um, I think Lynn Gaddis, one time I was talking to her and we just, this topic came up and, and she made the, I've, other people have said this, but it's like, you know, if, if somebody is mentally unwell, you know, and they go to the doctor, it's like, we don't, we don't begrudge somebody if they're, if their leg's broken mm-hmm. for going to the doctor, but we do oftentimes begrudge people who, you know, go to the counselor, the psychologist, because they have the same kind of, they have a problem going on in their mind and we do treat it as a society differently. Yes. Yes. I'll tell my uh, clients, patients uh, that come in that my view of mental health or as a counselor is you go to the mechanic, car mechanic, and you say, I got these different issues going on. The mechanic looks under the hood, da, 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 and I said, I'm a people mechanic. And my job is not to keep you in the garage all yeah. your life, but to help you so you go on life's road. And sometimes you have to come in for a tune-up of some sort, and it's not like, oh, my gosh, you're back. It's more like, okay, you know, how can I help? So to become a counselor, what did you have to do for schooling-wise? Is it a, is it a, like a master's program or like a how, – how would you – well, I have a, actually have three master's degrees. I have Ooh. a master's in education. I have a master's in marriage, family, child counseling. And I have a U.S. Coast Guard 25-ton master's license for Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> a little different than the other one. Right. But that's sometimes therapeutic for me. <laughs> so, uh, you know, to, to become licensed, you have to go to school, get a, at least a master's degree or a doctorate. And then you have to be uh, an internship or apprenticeship program for how many, you know, hours of doing that. For me, it was 3,000 hours of experience, which is oh. uh, several so, years. Yeah, several years, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, can, you can't pres- can you prescribe things? or No, I cannot prescribe. I have a, a psychiatrist that works for me. I've had a couple that have worked for me. And so uh, the model that we use with the other therapists in the uh, agency is... Um, uh, you know, collaborating, talking all the time. This is a little off topic, but at one point I joked about becoming a life coach mm-hmm. and I looked into it and that's different. I mean, you can, I guess anybody can become a life coach. Is that like, that seems like a loophole. It's a interesting field that they have. And uh, <laughs> it's, like, you know. it's a thing. I mean, people, there's people, that's their job. They're a life coach. Yeah. Which is kind of a counselor in some regard. Yeah, I, I think that I who's the uh, the football coach for Ohio State at the time, Woody. Uh, oh, um, I forget. Yeah, yeah. I know so, you're talking about. So sometimes you have this motivating life coach like that, but I like the other kind. But yeah, it's, it's just a weird kind of segment, I guess. There's people that do that, but I think there's no, no accreditation or training necessarily. And there's merit to that, and also this uh, peer counselors. Uh, we've seen that for substance treatment. That uh, that's you know real helpful in, in different formats. I did a, a podcast a uh, year uh, year or two ago with a, a lady from um, Wellpath. Excellent. She was a, a clinical psychologist, nurse, and we talked a lot about mental health. I mean, that was the whole thing with API, and we had a big conversation. And I'll never forget what she told me. Um, uh, I we're talking about a situation where people get very upset and, and, you know, when, when they're stressed out by, by police and somehow I brought up this, this, this topic or, or this story. When I was young, I was with some friends and they, um, made me, they had some brownies they had made and they offered me one and I had a, I had a few of them and they were marijuana brownie. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And I started to feel very, um, 
off. You know, mm-hmm. like what's going on? You know, and I'm starting to feel kind of crazy. And eventually they told me and I felt, you know, I was like, what the hell? This is not cool, you know, but she compared that to like somebody having a mental health breakdown or a mental health issue mm-hmm. and then having that exacerbated by like having the police show up, you know, when you're unwell and it's going to get worse. Mm-hmm. And and we basically talked about how we, we treat we treat people how to do CPR and, and first aid, but people generally don't know how to deal with people that are mentally unwell. Mm-hmm. You know, just there's no training for that generally for average people who can go get CPR and I guess I was going to ask you about, about people who do have mental health issues. You mentioned earlier, sometimes it's not easy for people to, to know what to do. And, and that, that seems like a big challenge maybe in, in this, maybe the whole world, but especially in this country. Well, I, I agree. And, and here's the, the perspective is that humanity is amazing. And I tell my interns that you're a person on, a, on an iceberg with a razor blade and you're scraping away at this thing and there's a lot more than what you see. And so be humble to know that all throughout our lives as a provider clinician, you're still going to be growing to understand humanity and what's going on. And the case of mental health, the question is how is your health mentally? And I view there's five aspects to our humanity. And like a teeter-totter that goes back and forth, you imagine there's five components that are tied together. And these five aspects is that we're, we're physical beings. We have a physical mind. We're emotional beings. We have an emotional mind, cognitive mind. We think. We have belief systems and all that processing. We're spiritual. And we're relational. And these five pieces have to be viewed to look at how is someone's mental health. Because you may have a bunch of great things going on for you uh, emotionally and cognitively and relationally. But as we know, come winter, if you don't get vitamin D, mm-hmm. it's going to affect you physically and then it will affect you emotionally and in your thinking and people are not going to like you or you isolate or whatever. So if one of those is off, it can affect all the other ones. Correct. So and if you if you fix the one, I guess ideally the other ones get get better too. And the others may be affected in a minor way, and then you know it's kind of work at that. So so how do you how do you identify if somebody comes to you? Is it hard identifying which one, which parts off? Is that hard to do or? Well, I think that's a piece of a, a holistic approach in helping the individuals. And that gets back to the whole thing of healthcare. Those healthcare programs like in Costa Rica and in uh, Thailand, and, and we're doing this now, which is great in Alaska, but we have ways to go, is to have all these providers together in the same facility. And you're like, okay, now I want you to go see them right now and arrange for these different pieces to take place. Uh, it's would be sad to say to someone, well, listen, we'll schedule you later on for your mental health or your substance issues and then find out that the person committed suicide or they just got so intoxicated that it wasn't dealing with their, their issues. Uh, other places are more proactive to come from a collective approach, a holistic approach. Yeah, the other thing the nurse told me was, uh, you know, I was like, what are, what are some ways to fix this? And she was talking about um, essentially kind of a triage, mental health triage center where instead of taking people, treating them criminally or having the police show up, going to jail, where it's probably going to make it a lot worse, you go to a place where you get kind of evaluated 
okay, what's going on? What's really going on here? How do we help them? What's the best place to put them? And she was saying in other, other states, that's been very successful, having that kind of place to let somebody go and really figure out what's wrong instead of going to the jail. Yes, exactly. And and uh, as you know, I was a trustee of the Mental Health Trust. Yeah, and, that's right, yeah. And we went down with a lot of different people from all over the state. I think there are 26 or more looking at the program in Phoenix, the crisis now. And so uh, the Mental Health Trust and others have come together, and they're trying to put together a crisis now format and see how it works in Anchorage. And if it does well to take it to other places. And I think they're looking at uh, Matsu and Fairbanks as well. Uh, but that's the model that uh, is in there that you're describing. And one of the components of the model is to, to reduce the uh, need of law enforcement to be involved in mental health uh, work, uh, but have other type of teams that do that. And uh, the program in, in Phoenix, uh, when the, uh, if law enforcement is needed to pick up someone and take it to a crisis now facility, the time that the law enforcement is, is dropping them off is under two minutes. So they could be back on the streets. Here in Alaska, we have some uh, troopers and, and APD that may be with a person for nine hours. So we've lost that unit. Yeah, and, and that shouldn't be. That's not their, their core job. Correct. It shouldn't be. I, um, I, I've told this story before, but I was driving a cab in, in um, 2009, 2010 when I was in college. Mm-hmm. And I got a million cab stories. Mm-hmm. But one that stands out. Uh, I got a call to the Sheridan downtown and you know, I show up and nobody was there and I walk in, I, I just call a cab and I said, oh yeah, yeah, we did. And then this, they point me to this guy and he, and he gets in and, and it was kind of awkward. I knew something wasn't right. It just didn't feel right, but he got in and, um, I'm sorry, it was a woman, excuse me. She got in and, um, started just saying the craziest stuff, like wild things about Arnold Schwarzenegger and like just like crazy things. And I didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. It's clearly called the cab to get rid of her, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I was just like really nervous, but I was, I was also didn't, I didn't know. I didn't want to just drop her off. She was clearly unwell, but in the, in the, in the, these kind of really bizarre rant, she had these moments of like co- coherency where mm-hmm. she said something. And eventually I was able to get her to give me a number. Mm-hmm. And I called this number. Uh, it was her brother in Seattle and he basically explained that she had a long history of mental health illness and kind of said, you know, take her to API and, and, you know, they know who she is. And, you know, I didn't know what to do. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've not dealt with that kind of thing. So I drove her to API and it was a whole ordeal and, and she ended up, you know, they, they took her in, but it's like, that's the solution that in that case, that was a solution was to call a cab, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is the worst probably, you know, I mean, luckily I was able to kind of deal with it, but it was really scary. Mm-hmm. You know, because they're, they're saying this stuff and you don't know what, like how to handle it. And um, it was it was a moment that I, I'll never forget. Mm-hmm. And if I had a place to, you know, I guess API is a place to go. But if, if it was one of the things you're talking about that I've heard about, that probably is, is I think everybody would know about that and might, might make things way easier when somebody's having a, a crisis or. And it, it takes the burden off of API. And uh, what. You know, this... In her case, she was off her. When she takes her medic, the brother told me when she takes medication, she's okay. Mm-hmm. But she just oftentimes stops taking it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that gets back to what I was saying earlier, where we do have ability to see the metabolism of medication in the person so that they could do that through a urinalysis. 
and uh, you just know that, okay, this person metabolizes faster, so they may need to change the formula, the way that they're getting their medication, or they're, they're not on any medication at all. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, it's amazing our technology today, there's no thermometer you put in them and say, oh, you need this medication, but still we're moving to realms of uh, understanding that better. Uh, compared to the 1800s, we're just uh, shackle them to some type of... Uh, yeah, the, the forced kind of institutional, institutionalization. Right. And that wasn't long ago, you know. That was up until the what, 60s, 70s, right? Um, yeah, correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what, you know, I, I was talking to somebody once about some, this issue and I... I made the comment of kind of education as well and kind of some of the th- things in society. And um, I, we were just having a conversation and they said, well, you know, Jeff, they used to just lock people up. So, mm-hmm. and I said, I'm, not, I'm not saying they should, we should do that, but he said, well, for a long time, people just got locked up and then that was the solution. And that's you know, obviously not the best solution. Right. And, and uh, when I was working on my first master's degree, I uh, drove an ambulance uh, and uh, they put me in the unit of picking up people on the involuntary holds and so um, that's kind of what I was assigned oh to do. So I would take them to, this is down in Southern California when I was doing my schooling down there. And um, so LA County, USC, Harbor General, all these major hospitals and, and dropping people. And they had psych units in the ER, psych ER. And Haldol and Thorazine and the padded room was kind of the standard type thing. And uh, the other thing was like, they would say, so where are you really from? And if they said, oh, I'm from Miami, they say, okay, we'll escort you to back to Miami. And uh, that's kind of the thing to do. And then what happened was cities were saying, well, oh, you came from L.A.? Well, we'll send you back to L.A. Oh, jeez. Uh, I remember one situation where a person said, well, I'm from Kathmandu. And I said, I will volunteer to take them there. Put <laughs> <laughs> in the ball. So, you know, we've come to the other end of, you know, we don't want to infringe upon someone by giving them medication. And I think that there's a, a, a medium in there. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, we've gone from, you know, 150 plus years ago to basically if somebody's unwell, we just lock them up. Yeah. Um, to now it's, it's, it's to the other end where you have people that are very unwell. We see all the time in society um, that it's clear they're unwell, but, but, but we can't do anything. And, and that's also a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, so how do you, you know, address it to where we're not, we're not forcibly putting people in you know a room but also where they're not out on the street maybe hurting themselves or other people and one of the things i have been very interested as a trustee of the mental health trust as a representative here for the state is data collection to show efficacy or effectiveness of programs and i really don't see the value in giving money to programs if they're not effective uh but to say, okay, this program here is more effective, then how can we duplicate that and, and, and such? And we need to examine cool. those type of things. Um, there's some programs in uh, Alaska that uh, we need to evaluate to say, let's fund that a little further because they have some good success rate. Maybe the success is in, in the numbers that they have and any more would make it unsuccessful. Um, but we have to do some serious looking at that uh, for the current events because the money's... Not there. I remember yeah. back in 2016 hearing from Senator Pete Kelly telling a bunch of us in the mental health field, and these are CEOs, uh, that expect 25% less in grant money this, this next year. And uh, 
So how to do it effectively, make sure we're doing it effectively. Technology is moving. Uh, back in 2009, uh, starting uh, my organization and doing a, a drug called Suboxone for a condition called opiate you know, yeah, problems. And we were the only two in the whole state doing it at that time. Um, now I'm glad that uh, medicated-assisted treatment is more That's the over- overdose one, right? Suboxone, is that the... Uh, that's for uh, the Narcan is for the or, sorry, overdose. Nar- Nar- Narcan, right. Mm-hmm. Suboxone is kind of the... Um, it's the buprenorphine, which is the... Um, is it like a methadone type thing? or n- No, methadone would be something that in our state, you have to go to the clinic every day to get your dosing. So the Suboxone, it's... Uh, has a um, antagonist and agonist in these technical terms, but mm-hmm. the piece of it is it allows the person to um, not have a craving for the opiates, and uh, and then they taper taper off the suboxone, so they're off of the opiates, and now they're off of the the medication. Is it pretty effective? As long as you taper, but we have some doctors that give the the suboxone, and really it switches one drug for the the next. But if you taper, I liken it to you get a, a major compound fracture to your arm. And maybe you have this major cast on your arm and on your shoulder or whatever because of that. And uh, as it's healing, that you go to lesser cast, lesser cast, a splint, you know, a brace until finally your body's healed. And that's the intent of the uh, buprenorphine is that it gets the person off the opiates and then they taper off of that in a gradual manner until finally they don't need the the Suboxone or the buprenorphine. There's been so many documentaries recently on Netflix and HBO on the whole opioid thing in the 90s and the kind of like massive prescribing going on. And it's wild, you know. It's just really crazy when you think it kind of happened for for so long. Yeah, that's that's correct. And I, I think back in the 90s that um, there was this one doctor in the community that I was at that um, uh, it was the sheriff that went after the doctor. Because you've seen the doctors creating these addicts and and uh, pay, this pain clinic, mm-hmm. and uh, the doctor lost their practice. They were shunned from the community, and today, looking back on it, they were just doing the protocol that the pharmaceuticals had set up. Oh yeah, and the HBO just did. I don't want to say. I don't think it was Pfizer. It was a company that, you know, basically they watched a documentary and they, you know, they prescribed this stuff for a long time and they knew it was messed up and they knew it was causing addiction and you know at the end of the day they got nobody got in trouble and they paid some fine of like whatever it was it was millions when they're talking about billions in profit i mean it wasn't even like a like a bump in the road um so switching gears i want to talk about the legislature a little bit uh we're here it's it's a friday so monday is kind of the day where they're talking about maybe a deal might get made and then wednesday is the the shutdown if it happens um do you feel like Things are going to shake out and avoid the shutdown. And I know it's been a lot of back and it's all over this effective date really is the kind of the main thing right now. Right. Well, it's an interesting uh, saga of events. And then certainly I have one vote, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, well at this point, one, one vote really, it got 23. And if, mm-hmm. if Rasmussen votes, you know, for it, she was gone. That's 24. So yeah. all of a sudden one vote <laughs> to 27 is the number. So there's some things that's in the works and, and some uh, proposals that's uh, before people. And, and so that's where it's at. And uh, um, I'm hopeful. I definitely don't want to shut down, but I also don't want to uh, uh, budget and the way that 
pulling money out in such a way that it's, um, uh, I believe, not effective. You know, the earthquake, when it took place, uh, I had to pull money out of my savings because FEMA was not helpful at all. And my office was taken out. And so when I came back from Costa Rica, I was scrambling to get my operations going. Your building was really damaged? Oh, yeah. A two-inch water line broke and was running for nine hours. And you were in Costa Rica, so you weren't even able to address it right away. Yeah, I mean, uh, others were dealing with that, but they, they were shutting down the building, and I'm down in Costa Rica. What about your house? Was that okay? Or um, I was actually closer to the epicenter of my house, but um, I have a log cabin, and I guess that I had no problems. Uh, I because had, Eagle River got pretty, pretty. That one house that was the big story, the house kind of split in half, and then oh, yeah. some of those condos had been more or less. Um, I think they were. What's the word when they when they rule them? You know, they condemned condemned the, them. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. No, you don't want to use my house as an example because people don't want to hear that I had really nothing happen to my place. Log, my log cabin's were. the way to go. I guess that's the case. Yeah. So the the piece of, you know, you have this money that's set aside for these different pieces. And my concern is we've taken $17 billion out of the CBR over the past six years and drained the CBR and the SBR, which is the Constitutional Budget Reserve and the Statutory Budget Reserve. And, um, and I know that's not the desire of the legislature's but we've got to make sure that we don't keep on doing that. Because what happens for the next rainy day? Who would have expected an earthquake? Who would have expected COVID? On well, the fires, too, in 2019. Those were... The fires. So I'm not a Debbie Downer, Dan Downer type person, but it's like, okay, what's when's the next shoe going to drop? What's that next thing? Well, the concern that I've had for a long... And I was... Back in 2012, I, you know, I, I was really worried about the spending because it was... Levels were a lot higher back then. Mm-hmm. And there was money, but I kind of was like, well, what happens when the money's gone? And now we're here. And my concern is the earnings reserve. Yeah. I think some people want to just spend that. And uh, that, to me, is the worst of thing you could do. Because once that money goes away, that's there's no more earning potential. Right. And I, I think uh, the analogy for uh, the public, and they're smarter than, than us, but the analogy I give is like a, a person that's a waitress at a, a restaurant. And there's the tip jar that all the tips are going into. They share the tips uh, with everybody. And um, and let's say that the proprietor of the restaurant says, well, I need the money out of the tip jar to operate. And they keep on taking the waitress's tips. And if that could be the metaphor, yeah, it's like it's taking the money from the people. And we want to make sure, certainly... You know, capital projects is taking care of the people, taking care of roads, taking care of different projects there, as well as giving jobs. And looking at the the permanent fund dividends and that whole piece of formula in there, but uh, I I don't think it's going to go well to keep on taking the tip I, jar. I, I, it's a funny analogy. I just saw a Gordon Ramsay thing a while back, and he went to this restaurant and they was kind of you know helping him out, and the the woman. Um, he gave a tip or something and she goes, Oh, we don't get tips. And he goes, what are you talking about? And she goes, Oh no, they, they all go to the the owner. And he's like, what the fuck? He, what? And then he comes, the owner comes out, this kind of, kind of, kind of not very polite guy. And he's like, I mean, the tips go to me, it's my business. And 
You know, he's like, what the hell is the matter with you? <laughs> he's like, what is wrong with you? Mm-hmm. This woman's working. She'd give her, you know, she deserves her tips, not there for you. Yeah. It was, uh, it was, it was pretty funny. Um, so what, um, what's it like been this, your first year in the legislature? It's been pretty crazy compared to, well, I've always said my buddy said, you think it never gets crazier, but it always gets crazy. Every year it always gets kind of crazier. Mm-hmm. But this year has been, you know, pretty intense. What's been your takeaway or your, was it what you expected, different, worse, better? Well, Jeff, as you know, this is my first year. Yeah. So what is uh, normal is what you experience your first year, right? Uh, and so when people, other legislators are saying, this is a really strange year of being a legislator, it's like, okay, this seems normal. And I'll tell my clients in certain situations, like in domestic violence, that uh, let's say that one person's come from the planet that when you greet one another, you slap them in the face and you come to earth and you don't do that, you know? Yeah. And so uh, this planet this past year in, in the, is you get your nose swabbed and you can't talk to people, you know, uh, constituents or anybody. You yeah, know, the COVID the the, uh, mask stuff was so, especially for me, I don't really have an office. So I'm always kind of in the public lounge or wherever I am and, you know, that's why I didn't spend as much time in the Capitol as I normally do, because that mask stuff was just really mm-hmm. tough, you know, all day long. It was it was uh, not enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And have a, a, a casual conversation six feet apart. Yeah, it was. Ugh. I'm so glad it's back open now and kind of basically back to normal. You know, it's open to the public and no damn masks. So the strange thing is uh, in this session, we have no plexiglass around our... I know, they just took that down, right? They recently, they, they put those down. They, somebody pointed that out today, I think, on the floor. Mm-hmm. They pulled it down. That was so weird, especially mm-hmm. in the gallery, you know, the whole plexiglass and the block in the, block in the floor. Mm-hmm. So, you, so you, basically, for you, this is not, you haven't really, you haven't anything to compare it to. So this is kind of... I've been down here just to talk to uh, legislators over the years or going to meetings, but I've not really participated in this realm. Uh, so it's, it is strange. And then my, my staff are telling me, well, you know, in the real legislative session, you don't have all this time to work on bills or talk to people or email. You're constantly having people come into your office. And, and I heard that, and I actually bought an hourglass uh, that gives 15 minutes. I figured <laughs> I'll just flip it over and say, okay, you got 15 minutes. And, and so uh, I never have had a chance to use it yet. I just play with it. I'm sure you'll sure have a chance pretty soon, mm-hmm. especially next year. Um, last thing I wanted to ask you now, you said you started, I, I fly, I have my glider license and I told you I want to get, when I get my private single engine, which is on my list, I want to get a 185 uh, someday in the future. But you said you have a 182 mm-hmm. and, and you had also said you started flying kind of later. Yes. So when did you, when did you get your, your license? I got my license in, I think, 2010. And uh, I was inspired of flying when I was a teenager and uh you mentioned that before yeah. but i decided to go into the field that i am and uh and then as i got married my wife was terrified of small planes so i didn't pursue a pilot's license uh, because of that um although i a whitewater raft to uh, all sorts of uh, rivers even i led an expedition down the grand canyon uh oh matt, matt clayman does that rip clayman oh yeah he's he guides on the river there excellent uh he's done that maybe 35 times. I think, yeah, he's done it a lot. Yeah, yeah. So um, when did you get the 182? 
Let's see, I picked it up in 2015 uh, as I was looking at different planes and seeing what is going to be sufficient for taking people, flying, having the gear. Uh, That's flying, a good plane. When it, I like when it comes. It is. Flying to Kodiak, being able to leave Kodiak quickly if a storm comes in, and I've had that experience. So you lived in Kodiak, right? For I, I did. When did you? I didn't ask you before. When did you move to Alaska? Uh, 2007. I came here permanently. I've been here in the 90s, different times, but uh, 2007 moved to Kodiak, and my grandfather owned an island and had a fishing boat in Kodiak. In fact, he was out at sea when the big earthquake hit. Oh wow! And uh, he did he feel under the water? I don't know if he really felt the tsunami go under him because he was in very deep water. Yeah, but yeah, like it starts uh, to, you don't even notice it until it gets shallow. That's when. Right. It so bad. like a Forrest Gump type thing when he came into port in Kodiak and it was all a mess. He was pretty much one of the only boats available. Oh geez, yeah. did you ever? Uh, did you know Louise Stutes back then with the bar? I, I do. Uh, yeah. So, now you're back. Now she's speaker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you said recently you were flying to Juneau or to Anchorage from. From from Juneau to Anchorage, right? Well, last uh, last week I flew my 182 down to Juneau, and uh, it was uh, I brought down uh, uh, Representative Shaw. I just called him and said, "Would you like to come down?" And so we had a 10 mile an hour tailwind. Free trip. It was a good trip. It was nice to share it with somebody. And then uh, so it's like four or five hours. You were saying it took us five. We stopped off in Cordova and Yakutat. And uh, and in Yakutat, there's a person there that has a big hangar, and he's got a DC-3 and a bunch of other planes there, so he took us on a little tour of his little museum. Oh, nice. So if anybody goes to Yakutat to go fishing, stop off at that uh, hangar, and he's got quite a few things. So when, when, but when, when did the fuel thing happen? Well, we uh, in the right bladder of the plane, that uh, it was weeping some fuel. and so While um, you're flying? While I'm flying. Oh, shit. And so it's like, okay, I'm going to, I could fly 1,100 miles in my two tanks of, you know, long range. So I just turned it over to the right tank and, and was uh, using that tank only. And, uh, um, and then when I got to Juno, just checked on it. And, and uh, then last Thursday, uh, things were not moving. And so, okay, I'm going to go home. And uh, flew back, and I took Representative Carpenter back with me. He was willing to go back, and and we did it in four hours and twenty minutes. But we had a fifteen mile an hour tailwind, so a tailwind going down and tailwind a tailwind helps, coming yeah. back. Go figure. So you're getting the? Did they figure out what happened with the the tank? Or I have my mechanic looking at it now. So that's a good one to get fixed, though. Yeah, the fuel <laughs> I hate it when the plane blows up. And it was coming it. out blue, you said, right? Because they put the half gas blue. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. No, I really want to get my. I've been meaning forever to do it, and I've never gotten around to it. And like I said, I, I sold it at fourteen in the glider. I got my private license at sixteen. I flew a lot when I was younger, and then even before. Problems in Alaska. There's only a few gliders, and they're privately owned. Um, they just started a club recently out of Birchwood, but mm-hmm. it's still like very fresh, and it's not really taken off yet but there's some nice gliders here but they're privately owned whereas in anywhere like you said you're from california that whole region or nevada new mexico where i'm from mm-hmm. there's all kinds of clubs and you know fbo's where you can go rent rent a glider fly it's very easy it's a little harder here in alaska but we have re- really good conditions i mean my buddy pete flies and we have some wave mountain wave here mm-hmm. that, that you know rivals the world as far as how how you could go on a really 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 good wave day and 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 the chugach i mean if it was ideal um it's it's um possible to get to forty five thousand feet 
Wow. Kind of glided. Now, the problem is you have to, FAA has to give the clearance. My friend Pete has a good story. After 9-11, he was, was whenever you were able to fly, right? But it was post 9-11 and he was in his little glider and he was out of Birchwood and he was up to 18,000, right below 18,000 feet. Wow. Which, I mean, I flew in New Mexico. We have the Sandias. Yes. And I've gotten to 25,000 feet before. I mean, it's it's wild. Amazing. And you, the FAA, the the people there, they know, kind of know the gliders are going on. You talk to them, they'll give you, a, it's called a wave window. Mm-hmm. And so Pete was out near um, Birchwood and he was up at eighteen, almost 18,000 feet, which for the pilots, you know, 180, you can't go up there, mm-hmm. class A, unless mm-hmm. uh, you get permission. Mm-hmm. And he called the tower and, he, you know, glider November, whatever, look, you know, uh, requesting a window above 180 and they were like maintain uh, altitude identify yourself and he's like maintain what are you I'm a glider you know what are you talking about mm-hmm. and and uh, they were asking these questions and it got and then it went silent and and uh, they stopped answering and he was like really confused and then I don't know some time went by and he started to hear something really loud and then he started to smell something they, they, they fucking um, deployed a couple F-16s because it was post nine, it was like, you know, September, October after nine eleven, whatever it was, uh-huh, uh-huh. and and uh, then they got back on there and they said, yeah, window denied. Uh, have a good flight. <laughs> but I mean, they they they, they freaking scrambled two jets, and he said he couldn't ever see him until all, all the way at the end, and he could smell. Uh huh. I mean, could you imagine? Right. right. <laughs> well, we live in a marvelous state, and aviation is a very important part of it. And uh, yeah, I mean, just we have the. The NOTAMs, uh, which is a uh, information of some mm-hmm. special thing that's going on, and so when the Notice president, the airmen, right, right, and so when the when the president comes into town uh, to Anchorage, uh, that people just can't fly in, and some of these uh, general aviation pilots don't like read them McGrath, they don't know or whatever, and not about McGrath, but they'll be flying in, and and all of a sudden here's a F twenty two, it's. Uh, doing its stall thing like trying to do, go the speed of this super because yeah, you, you can't go they can't go that they can't go that slow <laughs> so hearing the stories of these f-22 pilots to tell me about oh yeah i did this and one where he you know said follow me type thing and the the super cub followed him and then the f-22 is like okay i'm good and he turned to go back to anchorage and <laughs> Super Cub pilot didn't quite understand that, so he followed him. <laughs> oh, God, you got to read those notums. Warren <laughs> Bacardi was great talking to you. A lot, a lot of good, a lot of good uh, topics, and uh, everybody's always got different stories. And until you kind of sit on a chat with them, you know, you never, you never hear them all. So fascinating yeah. background. Well, thanks maybe, maybe you should give some of those guys in the Capitol some some counseling sessions. <laughs> what some of your colleagues? <laughs> Five cents an hour, like yeah, that Lucy does. That's right. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Ray McCarty. I appreciate it, and um, I think we'll be paying attention next week. See what see what happens. Well, thanks for chatting. Thank you. Appreciate it, uh, folks. If you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast, get a hold of me and stay tuned for the next one. Landline.